0: Good morning. Um, The second Bible reading is taken from Mark chapter 15, verse 33 to 39. You can follow along on the screen as well. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to him to Take down, take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died he said Surely this man was the son of God. This is God's word.
1: Thanks Christine. Uh, Well, good morning. My name is Ollie. I'm one of the ministers of our church and it's uh, great to be with you today on uh, Good Friday. Uh, We're going to be considering Mark 15. So if you've got a Bible, you can uh, keep it open with you um, as we consider it and study it together. Uh, But as we begin, I'm going to pray. So please uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you are a God who has revealed yourself to us. Uh, We thank you that in the Bible we have your word showing who you are and what you've done. And we thank you in particular for what it tells us about who Jesus is and what he's done, and particularly uh, what he did on that first Good Friday. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Who you are, uh, sorry, what you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you are standing. Now that's a quote from the famous C.S. Lewis. He's a, a famous author, and he says that, what you see... And what you hear depends a great deal on where you are standing. And isn't that true in life? Our perspective on things depends on where we're standing. That was certainly the case with the birth of my son, Levi. Uh, What was seen and what was heard and what was felt throughout that depended a great deal on where you were standing. Uh, For Cassie, my wife, she was standing in the shoes of the one giving birth. And so she saw and heard and felt the 70-hour labor, uh, the excruciating pain, and then the thrill of holding that little baby that had been living inside of her for nine months. For me, I was standing in the shoes of the husband and the father-to-be, and so I saw and heard and felt the powerlessness of not being able to do anything to ease that pain. I watched as my uh, newborn son breathed in his first breath, and I even got to cut the umbilical cord. That was um, quite an experience. I've got a a photo of it there, and that was me cutting the umbilical cord. Quite an interesting uh, experience, but that was what I experienced. And then, of course, there was the the nurses and the doctors, those standing in the shoes of a worker. For them, nothing particularly unusual there. They've seen scores or hundreds of births, and so uh, nothing particularly exciting for them. They've heard it all before. And then, of course, there were our parents standing in the shoes of the grand- grandparents-to-be, and they, uh, Levi was born in lockdown, so they couldn't be there, so they were at home, standing by the phone, waiting to hear news and to see photos, see what was seen and what was heard there depended a great deal on where you were standing. And it's the same for everything in life, isn't it? Where we're standing determines what we see and what we hear. Cast your mind back, well some of us cast your mind back, some of us experiencing this at the moment, to school exams. As I said, some of us are students now and we're going daily experiencing that pain of school exams, but others of us, I'm sure we can remember what school exams were like and what's seen and what's heard for exams depends a great deal on where you're standing. For those who are standing in the shoes of those who have studied then perhaps there's a little bit of nerves, but then there's joy and happiness as you're filling out all the answers, as it feels like you know what's on the exam. But for those who are standing in the shoes of those who didn't study, then what is there? Well, maybe there was complacency to begin with, but then the dawning fear that you are about to fail. Though, of course, I'm sure that was none of us would have never done that. But for the teachers, There's a bit of comfort at first. They're not the ones sitting the exam, so they're fine. But then it slowly dawns on them that they're the ones that have to mark all of the exams, and so there's the horror of that, Uh, which means that sometimes, I I used to work as a school teacher, and sometimes uh, teachers then like to get a little bit back at students. I once saw a multiple-choice exam where the teacher had made every answer A except for one, which was C. And you can just imagine what was seen and what was heard throughout that exam as the students are sitting there and they're marking A, A, A. And you know that feeling that it can't all be A. But then eventually they would have thought, oh, okay, they are all A. And then they come to C, see what, what do they do. And so what was seen and what was heard that day depended a great deal on where you're standing. And it's the same at work when someone makes a mistake, there's all sorts of different perspectives on that. There's the, if you're standing in the shoes of the one who made the mistake, then it's horrible. You just wish the floor would open up and swallow you. There's, of course, the perspective of the boss who's unhappy the worker has made the mistake, which means delayed deadlines or less profit. And, of course, there's those watching on, just happy that they're not the one that's made the mistake or what about uh, historic events like September 11 I still remember waking up that morning and watching it all on the news and what was seen and what was heard that day depended a great deal on where you were standing there were those who were standing on the plane as it sadly crashed into a the building there were those standing inside the building as the plane did there were the firefighters and first responders standing on the ground and entering into the building And then, of course, there were those watching at home like me. See, what you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you're standing. And as you all know, today is Good Friday, one of the central days of the Christian faith. Today we celebrate the day when Jesus was crucified, which sounds like a strange thing to celebrate. But we celebrate it precisely because of what we have in Mark 15, our passage for today, where we're given many different standing points, many different viewpoints of the crucifixion. And that helps us to fully understand what exactly was happening that day. See, in Mark 15, we're given the standing point of the crucified Jesus, how he viewed it. We're given the standing point of God the Father, how he viewed it. And we're given the standing point of an honest bystander, how he viewed it. And so it starts with the standing point of the crucified Jesus. We're shown what he saw and heard and felt that day. And it began with darkness. We see that in verse 33. Have a look with me. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. See, right in the middle of the day, when the sun should be up in the sky, shining brightly, instead, there's darkness. It's quite the contrast. 33 years earlier, when Jesus was born, there was brightness and music in the middle of the night. But here, as he dies, there's darkness in the middle of the day And you can just imagine how unnerving this must have been. Imagine if at lunchtime today, we're all at home at lunchtime, you look out the window, and the sky had gone completely dark. Not cloudy dark, we get clouds all the time here in Melbourne, but pitch black. And it lasted for three hours. If that was to happen, then how would you feel? Well, I'm sure we'd all feel quite unnerved, quite unsettled. It's not a normal thing. But that's what happens here as Jesus is crucified. And so the question then is why? Why does this darkness happen? Well, Jesus would have seen it and he would have known exactly what was going on. Because in the Bible, darkness signifies being cursed by God. We see that, for example, in the story of the Exodus. So God's people are in slavery in Egypt. And God sends 10 different plagues to rescue them. And the second last plague that he sends is a plague of darkness. And it's meant to show us God's displeasure against the Egyptians. And so in the Bible and here, darkness shows us that Jesus is under God's wrath, is under God's anger, which becomes even clearer when Jesus speaks. Uh, Did you see what he says? Have a look at verse 34 with me. He says this. Well, this is what happens at, at three in the afternoon. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, "Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani," which means, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" See, as Jesus speaks, he gives us an insight into what's going on in his head, into what he's seeing and what he's hearing. He gives us a viewpoint. He gives us insight into his viewpoint on the cross. And he shows us he's under God's wrath. He's been forsaken by god not for anything he's done but for the sins of the world see as jesus hung there god removed off his divine sense of love and replaced it with a divine sense of wrath and vengeance see that's what that means that jesus has been forsaken it's not that god has literally abandoned him Uh, that's impossible for god to abandon himself the trinity can't be broken but rather it means God has poured out his anger and his judgment against sins on Jesus as he hung there on the cross. Why? Well, it was for you. It was for me. It was for us. Jesus was forsaken because of our sin. Now, sin is a distasteful word in our culture. Uh, If you want to offend someone, then tell them they're a sinner and watch how quickly that will kill the conversation. But the Bible is clear, we're all sinners and I think we all actually know this. Deep down, if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that this is true. See, as much as we might wish that we always acted with kindness towards others, we don't. As much as we might wish that we always acted with integrity and did the right thing, we don't. See, even though we want to live in certain ways, we fail to live up to even our own standard. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all know that that's true. We can't even live up to our own standards of behavior. Leave alone God's perfect standards. And the Bible describes that as sin. And because God is perfectly just, he must judge sin. He must hold wicked acts to account. But see, the incredible thing that we see here is that Jesus was forsaken for my sin, for your sin. See, my sin and your sin were poured out on him who knew no sin, so that we wouldn't have to be forsaken. See, as Jesus hangs there, Jesus experiences the full weight of God's wrath poured out on sin, on the world's sin, both big and small every murder and every genocide and every little white lie, every adulterous relationship and every fudging of the numbers on tax returns, every armed robbery and every lustful thought. See, the full weight of God's judgment against the sin of humanity, both big and small, is poured out on Jesus in those three hours as he hung there Forsaken by God under darkness. See, that's Jesus' perspective on the cross. What you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you're standing. And as Jesus is standing there, hanging there on the cross, he's well aware that he's been forsaken by God so that we don't need to. Well, the crowd's standing there, uh, look on, and they don't really understand what's going on. And so uh, it's a little bit hard to figure out exactly what, what they mean. So it's possible that they hear the word Eloi and think he's actually, think he's saying Elijah. And so that he's actually calling out to Elijah to save him. It was a Jewish legend at the time that Elijah would come and rescue faithful Jewish people in times of great need. And so it's possible they hear this and genuinely think that Jesus is calling out for help. But it's also possible they're mocking Jesus, they're deliberately mishearing what he's saying and pretending that they think he's uh, calling out for Elijah to humiliate him. But either way, the point is clear. They haven't understood what's going on. They haven't understood what's happening. But Jesus knows exactly what's going on. And so after three long hours of hanging there, cursed by God, he gave up his life. Have a look at verse 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Now, Mark here only recounts that Jesus gave a loud cry. But in John's gospel, John's account, we actually hear what Jesus' final words were. And so if you've got a Bible, I'll get you to flip over with me to John chapter 19. Keep your finger in Mark's gospel, but flip over to John chapter 19, verse 30. And it tells us what Jesus' final words were. And this is what John chapter 19, verse 30 says. When Jesus had received the drink, he said, it is finished. See, those were his final words. It is finished. As he shouts that with his final breath, he gives up his life. Now, uh, this is quite amazing because this wasn't how people died when they were crucified. The way crucifixion worked was that people would slowly hang there over hours and potentially days Constantly trying to hold themselves up to gasp in air and then giving up and then holding themselves up. And it was an exhausting process. And eventually people would run out of energy after hours or days. And so they would eventually slump unconscious and then feebly die without a whimper. But that's not the case here. That's not how Jesus dies. Jesus is in charge. He took initiative, He chooses the moment and he chooses the word. And those words, it is finished, are actually just one word in the Greek in the original language, tetelestai, which is in the perfect tense. Now, we don't have the perfect tense in English, but what it means in Greek is it has a sense of ongoingness. And so you could quite literally translate the word as, it is finished and it will forever be finished. See, as Jesus speaks his final word, He gives us his perspective on the cross. He says it is finished and it will forever be finished. And you can just sense the relief in Jesus' words. In Jesus, as he says it, the mission is finished. The suffering is at an end. It's a little bit like when World War II ended. There was quite a famous... Um, photos or a couple of photos. I don't know if you've seen these photos. This is what happened when World War II ended. There was quite literally dancing in the street. People went outside and they danced and they rejoiced that the war was finished. The suffering was at an end. Uh, This was a war that killed over 75 million people and yet they danced in the street in relief that it was done. The killing was finished and that's kind of like what's going on here. Only greater See, this isn't just the end of a war, this is the end of sin. This isn't just the end of a war that's killed 75 million people. It's the end of sin that's killed or affected every person who's ever lived. They estimate that that's 108 billion people. And yet, it is finished. It is done. Sin has been dealt with. It is finished and it forever will be finished. What you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you're standing. And what did Jesus see and hear? Well, he experienced being forsaken by God for us. That's Jesus' perspective on the cross. But Jesus' perspective isn't the only perspective we're given. We also see the perspective of God the Father. We see what he saw and heard that day. And did you see what it was? At that moment, as Jesus utters his final words, as Jesus gives over his life, there's a stunning display of what it means to God. Have a look at verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, what's this all about? Well, the temple was this temple in the curtain, a curtain in the temple, and it separated off a place called the Holy of Holies, This was the most special part of the temple where God was said to live. And it was so special that only one priest was allowed to go in there once per year. And in fact, what they'd do as they sent this guy in is they'd tie a rope around his waist so that if he died while in there, if God was displeased and killed him, then they could pull the dead body out because they didn't want to leave it in there. No one else could enter in to get the body because it's only one person once per year. That's how special this place is seen as being. And it was separated by this curtain of the temple. A huge curtain, 30 feet high and as thick as a hand. And yet, as Jesus dies, God tears this curtain in two. And did you notice the direction that it's torn? It's torn from top to bottom. That is, from God down to people. There's quite incredible symbolism here. God is saying, I'm throwing open the door. I'm not just opening it, I'm doing away with the whole door. It's not just open a little. Essentially, God is saying, you now have access to come into my presence which is quite incredible. I mean, think about it. There's always restrictions on going and seeing powerful people. At work, you can't just waltz into the CEO's office. No, you're not allowed to go in. You need to organize with their personal assistant to go and see them. Or if you went to Buckingham Palace, once COVID is finally done and we're allowed to travel around the world again, if you were to go there... Then you couldn't just wander in and see the queen as she's sitting on the couch drinking a cup of tea. No, there's guards and there's all sorts of things that stop you from going into her. That's the way restrictions work for those who are powerful and those who are in charge. And how much more is God powerful and in charge? Much more powerful than a CEO or than even the Queen of England. And so how much more should there be restrictions on actually being able to enter into God's presence. And yet, the incredible thing we see here is that God throws open the door, he does away with the curtain, and he says, come into my presence, you are welcome. See, that's God's perspective on the cross. What you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you're standing. And from where God is standing, he makes clear to everyone, he is satisfied. The sin that separates us sinful humans from God has been dealt with. And so now any who put their trust in Jesus, who accept that he was forsaken for them, have been forgiven and have access into the very presence of God. See, this one that should be much more closed off than a CEO or than the queen has instead thrown open the door to us because of Jesus. That's what God saw and heard from his perspective on the cross that day. And then the final perspective we're given is that of an honest bystander, the centurion, who was standing guard at the cross. And our centurions were officers in the Roman army. They were in charge of 100 men. And they're always spoken of as men of integrity. They had to be men of integrity because they were the backbone of the Roman army. They were the backbone of Roman civilization. And as an officer in the army, he would have witnessed countless deaths, hundreds or thousands of deaths on the battlefield or deaths via execution. And so this is a man who's familiar with death. He's seen the fear that appears in someone's eyes as they breathe their final breath. He's seen the remorse that comes into people's eyes as they think of words unsaid and actions undone. He's seen the indignity of it all. He's familiar with death. And yet, as he's standing there watching it all, watching and hearing, he realizes that this death is different. And we see it in his remarkable proclamation. Did you see what he says? Have a look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. See, this is a man who's seen hundreds or thousands of deaths, and yet he realizes that this death here was unique. He realizes surely Jesus is special. Surely he is as he claims, that is, the Son of God. Now, someone might say, well, uh, maybe he's just not a reliable witness. Maybe he's somehow biased. But that's to misunderstand who this centurion is. Uh, This was his job. His job was to execute people. And so he didn't have any personal stake in it. To him, Jesus is just another criminal hanging there, being executed. One of probably hundreds, scores, or even hundreds of people that he himself has had a hand in executing. And so he's just an unbiased observer, he's got no skin in the game, he doesn't care either way. And yet, as he watches all that unfolds, there's something about this death that's different, something that's undeniable for an honest bystander, someone who simply sees and hears what's going on. And so that leads him, it forces him to conclude that surely this man was the son of God. And in many ways, this is one of the climaxes of Mark's gospel, Mark's account of Jesus' life. It starts in Mark 1.1, where Mark says that this is the gospel about Jesus Christ, the son of God. There's then another high point in the middle of the book in Mark 8.29, when Peter, one of Jesus' followers, proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah, God's special king. But it's not until here, right near the end of the book, that we realize that God's Son came to die. And he came to die for sinners. He came to die for me and for you. What you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you are standing and from where the centurion's standing right at the foot of the cross. As he sees the darkness in the sky and as he hears Jesus give his final cry, as he sees Jesus give up his own life and the temple curtain being torn, as he sees and hears it all, this honest bystander is forced to conclude that surely this man is the Son of God. And so they're the different perspectives we're given on the cross the different standing points. And so the question we have to answer then is where are you standing? Because you must be, you need to be standing in the shoes of the centurion. That's where you need to be standing today because that's the only position that deals with your sin. So if you're standing anywhere other than the shoes of the centurion, in any position other than that that says, surely this man is the son of God, then your sins are not dealt with. You don't have access into God's presence. It is not finished for you because you still have God's wrath and anger against your sin hanging over your head. But the offer is there. God invites everyone into his presence, any who'd put their faith in Jesus. And so if that's you today, then why not change that? Why not do what the centurion did? Why not take on board all that you've seen and heard and stand with the centurion? Why not echo what he says of those words? Surely this man is the Son of God. And in fact, uh, we actually know so much more than the centurion knew. He made that proclamation from simply seeing Jesus' death. But we know there's more to that. That's why we celebrate on Easter Sunday. We know that Jesus rose again to defeat death. So we've seen more than this centurion had seen. We know how the story actually ends. And so why not put your faith in the centurion, in Jesus like the centurion, so that your sins are forgiven and you can enter into the presence of God, the King of all things. God has that offer there for you today. Don't wait. Take it up. Make this genuinely a good Friday for you. And for those of us who are already standing in the shoes of the centurion, then praise God for that. Truly today is a good Friday. Not just because Jesus died, but because Jesus died for you, for your sins. See, because Jesus was forsaken, your sins are forgiven if you just have faith. And so in a little while, we're going to sing the song, How Deep the Fathers Love Us. It's a great song. It's one of my favorite songs. And I love it because it perfectly captures what we've heard today. That is that we are wretched sinners deserving of God's judgment. But that he loves us so, so dearly that he sent his son to die on a cross for us It's a great song, and we're going to sing it in a minute, but I thought as we close, I'll just read out a few of the verses from it. And as I do, just listen to these wonderful words. It says this, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart his wounds have paid my ransom. What you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you are standing. Where are you standing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for Mark 15. We thank you for the somber uh, account it tells us of Jesus' death, that darkness filled the sky, that Jesus was forsaken by you. And so our hearts break that that is the price of our sin, That is what our rebellion against you has caused. And so truly it is somber news. But we rejoice that that's not all there is, that there's much more to the story, that Jesus died for us so that we might be forgiven. And then on Easter Sunday, he rose again triumphant over death. And so we thank you that even though today might seem like bad news on on this Friday, Indeed, it is good news and that is why we call it Good Friday. And so we pray that every single one of us standing here today would look and see who Jesus is, would take into account what the eyewitness accounts tell and conclude the only conclusion that an honest bystander can come to. That is, as we weigh up all of the evidence, we must say, surely this man was the Son of God. And so we thank you for that news and we thank you that because of his death, you've thrown open the door And we have access into your presence. So we thank you for your love for us displayed in Jesus on the cross. It's in his name we pray. Amen.